I was recently sent a Harvard Business Review article uh, on how to manage a crisis. And um, it was written by somebody who said 10 years ago he had been addressing some international gathering of CEOs of large financial institutions and he'd asked them how many of them had, had managed during a crisis. And at the time, so this probably had to be before 2008, they, they said uh, no one raised their hand. And he then went on to, um, to, to share with the readers the advice that he had shared this group, and it was full of the kinds of things that, uh, that you see in these articles, right? You need, you need, to, uh, you need to be nimble, and you need, to, uh, you need to be decisive, and lead with confidence, and communicate to inspire, and rest the troops, and all these things. Um, honestly, I was a little surprised that this was a Harvard Business Review article, because it struck me as being a little um, trite, a lot of cliches, which, in fairness, cliches often become cliches because they're true, But I was looking for something beyond the last three dozen articles on managing a crisis that I had read. Um, What I was looking for is something that had a bit more depth to it. And that eventually led to this series. So as I have said, you know, I try to work six months, a year out in terms of sermons. So we had all this stuff planned and then COVID hit and, and sort of threw away that plan and have gone a different path. And in the fall, I was, I'm not going to do what I was going to do. The fall, we're going to be in the first few chapters of the book of Revelation, looking at the letters that Jesus wrote to churches, coaching them on how to navigate during um, life. And, and then before that, uh, starting next week, we're going to do a series called Reset, looking at the book of Joshua. So Joshua, the book opens, Moses is dead and Joshua's in charge and the people have now come uh, to the Jordan River and this is sort of take two because they, they had been there 40 years before, they did not take the promised land, everything had gone wrong, 40 years marching in the, in the wilderness or in the desert. And so now they're back and, and they're sort of, they're getting a second chance and there's a sense in which you know, at some point we're going to emerge with a second chance to do life and how do we do it differently and what have we learned. And so I'm excited about that. It starts next week. But it meant that we had a month that was open and and we're trying to figure out exactly what sermons to do during this time. And I personally was, was sort of looking and reading in Scripture trying to find advice about a crisis that was not... Um, a cliche. And, uh, and so that led to mentors in a crisis. And we have looked at Esther, we've looked at uh, uh, Nehemiah, Jehoiada, and today we're going to look at David. And uh, there are 40 others that we could look at, uh, but I, I wanted somebody who illustrated some particular themes. And, and I was particularly interested in the kind of wisdom that we get from the book of Proverbs. Uh, Wisdom, the Proverbs are not typical Proverbs like you might think of today. It's a very different kind of book. It's wisdom literature. And wisdom is is, is what we need in order to live well during times when the regular rules are not clear. So there are rules, there are guidelines. God has given us, has given us the law, and, and, and the law, the moral law is to our advantage, and it helps us live well. But there are times when we're, we're a little confused, like how do I, 
like, which moral law applies here and what am I supposed to do? And so uh, wisdom kicks in there. And of course, wisdom, the book of, of Proverbs, like so many of the books in the Old Testament are ultimately pointing us to Christ, who's the ultimate definition of wisdom. But I wanted something that, that reflected some of that. And um, that led me eventually uh, to, to David. I, I, was, I was interested in finding, and it took me a while to find, honestly, but I was interested in finding somebody that was going to have a longer-term perspective on things. Um, and in particular, as perhaps unwelcome as this counsel might be, I was looking for someone who, at this moment, was suggesting that we needed to be thinking about the next crisis, which might seem unfair. I mean, good, good night. Right now, we got you know economic upheaval and a global pandemic and, and civil unrest and, and uh, a national contentious election coming up. You might think <laughs> the call to... Uh, to reflect and to be preparing for what's coming next would be uh, unwelcome. But I have a friend who, who wrote a book. He, when I was a consultant, he was a consultant. And he, he dealt a lot with companies that were in uh, large-scale disasters. And the book that he wrote is called Now is Too Late. And that's because he would often find himself, um, you know, called in to try and navigate what was going on. And there would be uh, a clear path on what could be done, should be done. But he says, yeah, but, but you didn't prepare for that. And it's too late now to prepare. So his book is called Now is Too Late. It, it obviously, it argues for, for looking further ahead. And so um, I, I, I want to I make that point today. And we're looking at the life of David. And there's a lot of David stories that we, we could choose from. Obviously, he's, he's, his life in Scripture is, is documented more than just about anyone else's. I mean, we see him as a young child, and then we see him throughout his life. And then we get the book of uh, Psalms, many of which are his prayers. They sort of give us insight into his, how his mind is working and how he's processing things. So there's a lot about David that we know about. Um, he's born in Bethlehem around 1035 B.C. When he's about 10, he is uh, anointed recognized by Samuel the prophet as being the one who's going to be the next king of Israel. While he's still a young man, we see that he has musical talent because he's brought in to play uh, music to try and soothe the troubled, agitated mind uh, of King Saul. Then when he's 15 or 16, he kills uh, Goliath, becomes a national uh, sort of figure. Then we see that, that uh, he sort of gets, he's starting to get sideways with Saul. He feels threatened by him. And so he banishes David from his court. Then Saul appoints David to be over a, uh, a sort of a legion of troops. And then Saul will give uh, the hand of one of his daughters, Michael, in marriage to David. And then there's an extended period where David is, is actually on the run. Uh, he's living in hiding because Saul is trying to kill him. And that leads to lots of interesting adventures. One of my favorite passages comes when David has sort of hired himself out as a mercenary to other nations because he's got this band of vigilantes that are with him. They're all sort of uh, the ne'er-do-wells and they're out uh, in the desert. And there's a day where everything goes wrong and the vigilantes are turning against David and, and he shows just remarkable leadership. But it, the text that I particularly love in 1 Samuel 
uh, 30 says that David strengthened himself in the Lord. He's, he's going to lead this group of men who I think would be hard to lead. He's going to lead them well, but he leads himself first. So there's, then, then of course, David will be eventually, Saul will die and David will be appointed king and he'll quickly unite Israel and he'll, he'll defeat their enemies and he'll expand their borders and he'll fill their coffers with money. Uh, he has a remarkable run and then we got the tragedy with Bathsheba and that leads to then the death, the murder of Uriah and then Nathan the prophet confronting him. And we're going to watch from that point on as although David is forgiven, we get Psalm 51, his, his sort of national public prayer of, con- of confession and repentance. But he's still going to reap what he sows and we sort of watch as David's life becomes a bad soap opera. So um, there's a whole lot about David in, uh, in the Old Testament that we could look at, and that's before we even get uh, to the Psalms and uh, then some things said about David in the New Testament. Um, by the way, I've recently been struck by uh, some Psalms that he wrote when he was in hiding, and they alternate. He writes a series of Psalms when he's hiding from, from um, Saul, and they alternate between these uh, sort of cries of frustration and these, this portrayal of his situation as being very dour and psalms of hope in which he has a different perspective and he's looking at God. So there's a lot about David that we could learn from. In fact, I'll just note, I mean, David excels in ways few others ever have. He's, he excels as a king. He excels as a statesman. He excels as a warrior. He excels as a poet. He excels as a musician. He excels as a philanthropist. The, 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 we're told that he's going to donate 100,000 talents of gold. And by today's standards, it's like $180 billion he's going to give to the building of the temple. So it's, if you're going to try and find somebody, I mean, you can find great kings, you can find great poets, you can find great warriors, but it's hard to imagine somebody who excels in every one of those areas. I'm not sure that I could name a second person for that list. So there's a lot that we could learn from David. There's a passage that uh, you might have overlooked, and it comes as part of the David and Goliath story. Uh, it's found in 1 Samuel 17 that I want us to, uh, to look at. So 1 Samuel 17, there's been a battle between uh, the, the, the Jews and the Philistines, their perennial enemy, and, and in this battle, the Jews were victorious, but, but instead of retreating, the Philistines have sort of regrouped, and they're in this valley of Allah. I've been to this valley a couple times, uh, and, and every morning what's happening is that, the, that both sides, the, the, the army for the Jews and the army for the Philistines are getting ready and they're, you know, the adrenaline is starting to flow and it's the pregame ritual and they're clanging their swords and shields and everybody's getting ready uh, and it looks like they're going to go to battle. And then I'm reading now <clears throat> in, um, in 1 Samuel 17 beginning with verse 8. Then something happens. So this guy comes out and he says, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, this day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight together. So 
this man is Goliath. And he's suggesting a representative battle. As opposed to everybody fighting, he says, look, I'll represent the Philistines. Send anybody out that you want that's going to represent the Jews. And as opposed to everybody killing everybody, if, if I win, then you're going to become our slaves. And if you win, we'll become your slaves. The Jews didn't generally engage in this kind of representative battle. But we've got historical records that it, it was happening. Uh, it didn't seem to ever work because the, the, the two sides would then go to battle anyway. But, but um, look, this is happening every morning. And this is the backdrop for David showing up. And the, and the problem that, that people have, the reason no Jews are, are rising up to, to battle against Goliath is because he's huge. The text says that he is uh, six cubits and a span tall. Now, if you're a little rusty on your ancient uh, Jewish measurements, a cubit was the distance between here and here, and a span is the distance between here and here. So obviously, it differs from each person. It's, 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 not, um, it's, it's not quite our measurements today. But if you look at the average height of people back then, and you look at all of that stuff, um, it looks like the, the average distance between your elbow and the tip of your little finger is 17 and a half inches. So he's six cubic, so that's 105 inches, plus the span is nine, it's 114. So you got, um, uh, you, you add, you divide 114 by 12, and you get somebody who is nine feet, six inches tall. And that's a big boy. Now, the Guinness Book of World Records says that the tallest person who ever verified height is uh, Ralph Waldo. He's 8 feet 11 inches tall. There is an unsubstantiated claim of a person who is 10 feet 1 inches tall. Uh, whether Goliath is 9'6 or not, he's clearly the biggest guy out there. And, and the text will say that his armor weighs 150 pounds and that the head of the, on his spear weighs like 12 pounds. He's like a bowling ball. And so he's just this, he's just this uh, monster of a guy and nobody wants to fight him. And so Saul, the king at the time, has got this problem because none of his, no one wants to go out and fight him, and so they're being mocked. And he's offered, you know, tax-free living for anybody that will go out and take on Goliath. He's offered the, uh, the hand of another one of his daughters in marriage. He's done everything he can to try and come up with, um, to try and come up with a way for someone to fight Goliath. And it's not happening until David shows up. So he's on a UPS run. Uh, his dad has sent him with a care package to take to his brothers who are on the, on the front lines there. And um, so he's not been to battle before. He's, he's showing up as a, as a young kid. And um, so he makes his entrance into the story. We don't really know anything about David, much about David, until he shows up here. And um, he shows up and they go through the morning ritual. You know, they get ready for battle, and then out comes Goliath, and he, the, you know, they're all yelling and screaming at each other because they're about to go to battle. You know, we've got spirit. Yes, we do. Uh, I don't know what they're yelling at each other. But they're getting ready for battle, and then Goliath steps forward, and, um, and he, he says, why are we doing this? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not Jews? Send a representative. And, um, 
And he, he, and, and we know if we sort of decipher what Goliath says, he goes, you know, you're, you're servants of Saul. I, I'm, a, I'm a Philistine. Servants of Saul is a slam against them. They're not servants of Saul. They're servants of God. Uh, but, uh, but we've got this passage in which he's defying. Goliath is defying God. He is defying the, the Jews. And everybody is staying where they're, where they're at. And David says, what's happening? Why is this happening? Why are you allowing this to go on? Um, and the, the, the text says that the Israelites, so obviously there's more than one soldier, they collectively are explaining to David, well, you know, the king has offered all this money and he's offered all these things, but every day this huge guy comes down and none of us want to fight him. And so um, we're, just, we're just sitting back and we're not sure what's going to happen next. And then uh, verse 28. Well, when Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard that David uh, was speaking with men, he burned with anger at him. So he's, he's mad at David, this, you know, his kid brother. Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? So, so a, little, a little jab, like, you know, who do you think you are? And you have, a, you have an assignment. You got a few sheep you're supposed to be watching. Um, uh, he puts him down and he says, I know, this is still him speaking, I know, David, how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now, what have I done? Says David. Can I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter. And the man answered him as before. And so David is going to, eventually, he's going to go to Saul, right? And he's going to say, look, Saul, King Saul, your troubles are over. I'll go fight him. And Saul's going to go, you're just a boy. This guy's been a soldier since before you were born. And they go back and forth. Uh, and then we have this passage. And, and here's, here's the pay dirt. So this is, this is, um, this is 1 Samuel. Uh, verse 17, verse 34. David says to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it and struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Now it's unclear whether Saul thought that this was going to work. Uh, and we get a little comical scene where David tries to put on Saul's armor and it's way too big and it doesn't, doesn't work. And then he goes out and Goliath sort of mocks him. You know, am I a dog that you're coming at me with sticks? Who is this little kid? Um, but then, verse 48. As the Philistine moved closer to attack David... David ran quickly toward the battle line and met him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. 
the stone sank into his forehead and he fell down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the scabbard. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. They were not expecting this. Then the men of, of Israel will surge forward. There's the, they, they sort of go and they chase the Philistines and the, they plunder the camp and, and, uh, and, and all this happens. And then there's this interesting little passage at the end. As Saul watched, so King Saul watches David defeat Goliath. As Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistine, he said to Abner, commander of the army, Abner, whose son is that young man? And Abner replied, uh, as surely as you live, O king, I don't know. But they soon will. And we know. We know about David. The whole world knows about David. So let me just be sure you see a couple things here that I think have got value for us. This is not described as a supernatural event. We're not told that, that God, through a miracle, strikes down Goliath. Rather, it is described as the result of practical <laughs> preparation on David's part. The clear message is that David was ready for the crisis. And secondly, he was ready because he had been faithful in the little things. Let me read for you this, this key passage. This is verse 34. This happens after Saul has said, um, you're, you, you're the one that's willing to fight. Uh, you're the one that's willing to go after Goliath. And he says, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear would come, uh, I went after it and, and I prevailed. And says, the Lord delivered me and he will deliver me now. So, David is ready because David was faithful in the downtime. David was faithful in the uninspired moments. Being a shepherd was a boring job. It was the, it was the, the worst job. David is the youngest child uh, in the family. He's given the assignment nobody else wants to do. But he was faithful in what was immediately in front of him and that prepared him for a bigger role. And I would submit to you this is a pattern we see in Scripture. God prepares people for what is coming. Moses has 40 years in the Pharaoh's, uh, Pharaoh's house. He has 40 years in the desert to be prepared for the assignment. Joshua has 40 years at the right hand of Moses to be prepared for what's coming next. Joseph has this long period of time where he's faithful in doing the things that, that, that his master tells him he has to do. Uh, I could go on. Samuel spends more years than he wants to cleaning you know, the, the furniture and dusting the furniture in the tabernacle before God calls on him to be a prophet. It is common for God to mold people in small, quiet, backroom ways before he ever trusts them with more responsibility. Or to say it this way, God is looking at people who are faithful in the uninspired moments and he's giving them opportunities to be shaped for the challenges that come ahead. So, 
Let me just say, more challenges are headed our way. More challenges are headed your way. Right now we have all the challenges that are going on, but you know and I know that there will be more unsettled moments, more unemployment, more pandemics, more uh, frustrating, contentious elections. Here's something else that we know. Here's something else you can know. Here's something else you can take to the bank. The giants will fall. God will prevail. God will win. He will accomplish his purposes. The end of the story is never up for debate. The question is not, will God set up his kingdom? Will Christ prevail? Will the kingdom of God ultimately triumph? Jesus will prevail. That is absolutely certain. The question is whether or not we will be ready to participate. So my question to you is, how are you using your uninspired moments right now? What are you doing to be shaped by Christ today? Please understand, the challenges in front of you right now may, may appear to be boring. The discipline that, that you are give, being given an opportunity, that I'm being given an opportunity to develop during this unsettled time may not come to you as anything uh, grand and formative, but it is. So men and women, our character is shaped in quiet ways during uninspired moments so that we're ready for the crises that come. I want to encourage you now, even as we're going through this series of crises, to be reflecting and growing so that you're ready for whatever other challenges come our way. I think mentors would tell us to do that. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I know that uh, there are more than a few that are frustrated and struggling and listless and overwhelmed, panicked, whatever. Uh, this is... this. This period is wearying, and, um, and there's lots of discouraging news, whether it's about school or the economy or whatever. So I want to pray, Father, that during this particular season, that we would be shaped to be more and more like Christ. And we would see the opportunities that we have to do that. We would seize the opportunities that we have to serve, to be molded in ways that make us... Um, people that you can use for even greater ends. We pray this in the strong and certain name of Christ. Amen.